Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, fertilizer use in Canada, nitrogen emissions. It's a hot, hot topic. We'll also talk about businesses and their drive to do more with less. And when it comes to these staff shortages, our hospitals and our healthcare system, you know there's really no way of tracking it. And Ukrainian refugees running into all kinds of red tape in getting to Canada. As you know, the federal government recently unveiled another one of their benchmarks in the fight against climate change, right? There was the talk of the oil and gas sector and how they need to reduce their emissions on a much quicker uh, schedule than before. Uh, uh, the other one was targeting nitrogen, and that touched off intense opposition from some business groups, but especially from farmers, from our agriculture community in this country. Um, and the argument is pretty simple here. One day, the Fed stand up and say, Canada can help fill the gap. We can help address the growing food shortage happening around the world. A lot of it in light of what's going on in Ukraine. Well, Canada can fill some of that void. And then almost the next day you come out and say, yeah, but we're going to limit fertilizer use that will actually reduce the amount of food that we can produce. So, so which is it? You can't have both. And what's the point of this reduction anyway? How is it another one of these grand proclamations that really, if you dig a little bit deeper, doesn't make a lot of sense? Let's find out. We'll get, uh, Get the viewpoint of an agronomist here and president of Solid Ground Solutions. Paul Myers joins us now for a conversation. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Shay. Thanks for having me. So am I oversimplifying things here? I mean, really, is this anything more than handicapping our agricultural community while at the same time expecting more from them the worst possible time here? Um, well, let's let's put, I guess, this all in perspective. As an independent agronomist, I mean, I work directly with farmers, so I'm, I don't work for retailers. There's nothing in it for me to suggest that we need to produce more fertilizer or anything like that. So I want to get that straight first. So this is me being proactive in terms of uh, advocating for agriculture. And the reality is, is very simple. Um, the greenhouse gas that we're talking about or the emission that we're talking about is nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is basically formed uh, through a metabolic process, through heat and temperature, and volatilizes into the air. It's 300 times more uh, intensive of a greenhouse gas than, let's say, carbon dioxide. Okay. So when we look at this, we say, okay, when a farmer applies this fertilizer, they don't want to lose 30%. Um, if we lost 30%, that's, that's basically profit margin. And so when I sit down with a farmer, we literally go through the process of saying, setting a target yield. We know how much fertilizer is in the soil by taking an accurate soil test. We go through it. We benchmark and say how much uh, yield target we're going to try to set. And that goes through experience and time and effort and all those things to come up with a yield. And that yield is is where we want to try to hit. Now, the yield is important because that yield is what is needed to be profitable, to break even, and to make money, and feed the world, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you start looking at it, so it takes a certain amount of nitrogen, a certain amount of phosphorus, potash, sulfur, and, and micros to build a bushel of 
let's say wheat or canola. Okay, all right. It, it takes 3.4 pounds of nitrogen to produce one bushel of canola. So if I have a target yield of 50 bushels, that takes about 170 pounds of nitrogen. But when I sit down with a farmer, I have to produce 45 or 40 bushels of canola to break even. So now I'm trying to factor in a profit margin. So if all of a sudden the federal government says to us, you have to reduce your, uh, your emissions by 30%, effectively also thereby also maybe potentially reducing our fertilizer usage, now all of a sudden I'm playing with 140 pounds of actual nitrogen, which only will give me a 35 bushel or 30 bushel crop of canola. I'm not profitable anymore. Not only that, but now all of a sudden I've taken that 30% of the food out of that out of the food chain sure. because now I'm producing less. Now, this is one of the things that we have to understand is this is an emissions target. We're not the federal government, and I've, I'm kind of a political geek, and I've went through a lot of the data and I've I've looked at a lot of the proposals. One of the things that I really have to emphasize is right now they are soliciting feedback from the agricultural sector. You can go to the Ag Canada website. There is a discussion group or a discussion survey in the Ag Canada website, and I would uh, more uh, be you know have farmers and and advocates of agriculture go and fill out that uh, survey so that the Ag Ag Canada and federal government really has an understanding of the problems associated with advancement in technology. But at the end of the day, Shay, it's about reducing emissions. And I think there's a lot of things that we can do even in the interim, like, for example, doing soil tests to determine that we're not over-applying fertilizer. Um, There are things that we can do from a inward-looking perspective that will actually help uh, reduce emissions. Um, Because the 30%, I I don't know of anybody that can actually tell me where they came up with this 30% reduction. I think it's sort of an arbitrary number, uh, and that number has been basically pushed forward. But um, I don't think that the technology and the advancements in agriculture that we currently are using uh, supports that 30% reduction. I think we can reduce our emissions by doing certain things, but I don't know where they got the 30% from. But, yeah. Paul, interesting, uh, a bunch of stuff we can pull apart there. I want to ask you, though, first of all, when we talk about reducing emissions by 30%, some of the reading I've been doing, um, some of the experts saying, we don't really know what our emissions are. And what you're doing is sort of saying, well, if you buy this much fertilizer, we're assuming this. Well, you might not even use the... I mean, do we have an accurate reading on how much emissions are actually being produced? Can we even quantify that? No, because it's it's biological in nature, right? Right. So if, if you are... If you're practicing the the nutrient uh, nutrient stewardship initiative, which is basically the right source, right time, right rate, right place, putting the fertilizer where it needs to be, and you have conditions that are conducive to good plant growth, you could have nominal levels of emissions. You you might have next to nothing. Now, if that same grower goes out and broadcast fertilizer or spreads manure on a field and he leaves it there for a few days, then his emissions are going to be significantly higher. So we're not taking into account this uh, technology that the farmers are currently using and the environment, which has a major factor in terms of how much nitrous oxide is actually produced. 
Okay. So capturing that data is not accurate. Exactly. I mean, I've looked, I've done, I've gone a deep dive and looked. You can find support for seventy-six uh, percent of the nitrous oxide being produced by agriculture, down to thirty percent. Some say fifteen. There is absolutely no way to quantify it, other than the fact that the nitrogen cycle is very easy to look at and determine, and is and say. Uh, we know that nitrogen or synthetic fertilizer can produce nitrous oxide. We know how many tons are produced in Canada. Uh, we know how much tonnage is being shipped or exported. And we can do a deep, much the same as in the oil and gas sector, we can actually arbitrarily look at it and say, this is how many tons of, of carbon or uh, nitrous oxide are being produced. But to quantify it, Scientifically, I don't think they have that ability. They don't have the ability, exactly. Okay, I've only got a couple of minutes left here, Paul, but to ask the question, what do we do? What's the better way of doing this then if they do really... Because it seems to me this is a a grand proclamation that look at what we're doing when it doesn't make a lot of sense and it's really hard to figure out anyway. Is there a better way of coming at this? I think one of the biggest things is, is taking a step back and actually giving credit where credit is due with the agriculture sector, and that is... Uh, allowing farmers and and innovators to actually adopt technologies to be more efficient. There are technologies that are out there. We have coatings that produce or that limit uh, uh, nitrous oxide emissions through fertilizers, such as ESM, Agritain, those sorts of things. We're using variable rate technology and all of those things. And, And what the federal government needs to do is give credit to that and then look at how much more we can do from that perspective through genetic modification and some of the technological advancements in some of the companies they're creating uh, microbial activity for actual plants to create their own nitrogen Um, many many things but to just at face value put a number on it and say now you have to do it is is basically the knee-jerk reaction and farmers and the landowners are having the knee-jerk reaction of saying, grab my pitchfork, let's go to Ottawa. And and I think we need to take a sober second thought and really look at this and say, maybe through the environmental farm plans and whatnot, say, where can we do better? But the government needs to actually acknowledge what we are already doing. Fair enough. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your insight today. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. That's Paul Myers, who is an independent agronomist and the president of Solid Ground Solutions. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Unemployment remains at record lows in our country, under 5%. More than a million jobs currently sitting vacant across the country. Uh, And how many stories have we had about 
work shortages affecting everything, right? Businesses report problems with staffing, healthcare, I mean, restaurants, you name it, hours being reduced, all kinds of drastic measures having to be taken because there just isn't enough people to keep the doors open. And it's put the spotlight again on uh, on an age-old, I don't know if it's a problem, but it's a challenge. It's something that uh, companies have always tried to do. Um, how do you do more with less? How do you get the best bang for your buck out of the staff that you do have, right? Productivity. That's what we're talking about here. And joining us um, for this conversation, we have Michael Veal, who's an economist at McMaster University, leading a team of researchers and working with Stats Canada to bolster Canada's productivity. Productivity, Michael, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Glad to be here. And as I said, this is a story, not a story, but a situation or, or, a, or a challenge that we've always faced and always will face, right? Productivity. How do you maximize productivity? Well, I think, in, as you just said, uh, firms naturally will do this, right? Because they have the incentive to uh, do more because that's, that goes to their bottom line. So I think the most important single thing to remember in this discussion is that a lot of this happens automatically. And the real concern has come about from comparing Canada to, say, the United States, where the United States seems to have a better performance, and it seems to, to do largely with the adoption of, of new technologies more quickly in the United States than in Canada. And, you know, maximizing productivity is the dream scenario for everybody wins in that instance, right? I mean, the company does well, the country's economy does well, and the worker does well. It's Maximizing productivity, I think, is, is sort of, it's, it's utopia. It's what we all want to see happen. Yeah, I think some people, however, think about maximizing productivity. They think about their employer coming down on yeah, them and trying yeah. to get them to work harder, um, you know, cut breaks and all these sorts of things. And that really isn't what productivity should be about. Productivity should be about uh, doing more with less, and that's not just less on the firm's part, but less on the employee's part, so that every employee's hour becomes more valuable. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right, though. A lot of us hear about increasing productivity. It's like, okay, there used to be three people in your unit. Now there's two, but we need the same amount of work. In fact, we need more work. I think a lot of us have, that's the reaction we have when we hear do more with less, right? That's right. And I think it's really the focus should be on technology uh, to get more from every person's input. So how do we measure productivity on a national scale? How do we take a look at a country's productivity? Like you said, typically the United States is seen as more productive than us. How do you measure that? Well, basically, there's this indicator called gross domestic product, and you divide it by either the number of people or the number of people by working age or sometimes by the number of hours those people put in. Um, And it goes up. Uh, In all modern countries, it it goes up. Uh, It's just going up faster in the United States more often. Although sometimes, of course... Um, some of that reflects the fact that uh, there's a change in industry mix. So, for example, if one industry is doing particularly well, then that may make the productivity numbers go up, not so much because of anything to do with policy or even things that the firms have changed, just because that industry is having a boom time. Gotcha. Okay. So when we take a look at, um, you know, how productivity is, is doing in, in other parts of the world, can we learn things? I mean, can we compare ourselves to other places and see if there's something we could be doing better? Yeah, I think I think there is. That's true. I think uh, there are all sorts of policies, and and for example, the government now has been uh, putting forward a proposal that's based on things that have happened in Israel and in Finland uh, to try to improve uh, technology adoption and uh, firms taking processes that were developed in Canada through to the next level so they become commercially viable. Um, the other thing I think when we we look at this is we compare ourselves very often to the United States, 
And the big thing is that the United States appears to have a faster adoption of uh, communications and information technology. And I think that makes a difference. Uh, but also we have to remember that we're Canada. And part of the problem with Canada is that it's a, a very spread out country, very mm-hmm. diverse in lots of ways. And that is a challenge that's particular to us. Yeah, and we, I mean, it, it affects us in so many different uh, sectors, there's no doubt. What about competition? We always hear the same thing. And, and part of the problem is we don't have a lot of international competition, again, because of our geography. But can competition really spur productivity? Uh, we think it can, although there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is... Uh, Firms should want productivity anyway. Right. It doesn't matter whether they're competing or not, because what they want to do is improve their bottom lines. And the other is that maybe some firms are a little bit too cozy. They don't really push the bottom line too much. They, they relax a bit, but because they're in a uh, non-competitive framework, either because of government policy or because of Canada's geography, uh, they, they don't push as hard as they might, and then that hurts productivity. So the work that you're doing uh, in conjunction with Stats Canada, um, h- how, do you, how do you vision uh, visualize this being used? How will it fit into making this uh, a more productive country? So that word bolster that you used in, the, in your introduction, I mean, that'd be very nice if we could do that, but yeah. of course you can only inform. Um, and the work that we're doing is, is largely um, to get um, better data uh, so that one can compare the experiences of, of various firms and various industries and see what can be learned from that. Um, the difficulty, of course, is you have to do this in a way that preserves uh, anonymity and confidentiality because you, you, know, you don't want to um, reveal particular firms' secrets. And, of course, that there are safeguards to prevent us from doing that. Uh, but there's been a lot of work done at the individual level. For example, when new programs developed were like child benefit programs and, and things like that, they're always run through the data at the individual level. Uh, we haven't been able to do that sort of thing at the firm level for, mm. for many years, and we are starting to get the sort of data uh, that allows us to do that. And in particular, it used to be that to a- analyze such data, you had to go to Ottawa um, because they wanted to make very, very sure of the confidentiality. Um, now it is possible to access that data at various sites across the country, again, with the same safeguards. Interesting stuff. And like you say, I mean, it, just the data alone should be so helpful. Um, Michael, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks. That is Michael Veal, an economist at McMaster University who is leading a team of researchers uh, working with StatsCan to try and, you know, improve Canada's productivity. And, you know, I I guess the takeaway for me in in all this is, yeah, this data is really going to help and we can compare ourselves with other jurisdictions. That's great. Um, But, you know, if if you've had a job for any length of time, that uh, increasing productivity usually uh, has a negative connotation because I think a lot of us think of, um, you know, what we used to have, like I say, your unit used to have three people or 30 people. And now you have two or you have 20 and you still have to do the same amount of work. In fact, you're going to do the work that other unit that we got rid of is doing. So uh, there's that natural uh, do more with less is typically seen as, uh uh-oh, that's not a good thing. But as he said, there's there's other ways of doing it. It's not just as simple as uh, asking the same people to do more work. Uh, the stories recently about staffing challenges in our healthcare system, right? I mean, how could you not? They're happening all the time and more and more and more facilities are dealing with them and having to reduce their hours and close things down. I mean, and there's a long list in Alberta, but it's not just Alberta. It's happening all over the country. We're seeing this, right? Um, 
hours were, I mean, surgeries canceled in some cases, Toronto General. So, I mean, all kinds of problems. It's national in scope, and they're being told in every province in the country. But it's really, really hard to get a simple answer. And we try as to what happened. Where did they go? What are the shortages? What are we missing? What do we need? There's a lot of blind spots in the reporting and the data around this. And to help us understand that and maybe make things better, we have Dr. Ivy Bourgeau joining us, a research chair in gender diversity and the professions at the University of Ottawa and the lead of the Canadian Health Workforce Network, a research group that is studying health human resources. Dr. Bourgeau, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So, yeah, when we talk about sort of tracking this, we know it's a massive problem from coast to coast to coast right now in our country, but we don't really have an effective way of tracking exactly what's going on, do we? Yeah, there's absolutely some... uh, Uh Uh-oh, having some trouble with... Oh, it sounds like you're back now. I'm sorry, Doc, you you broke up for a minute there. Sorry, we had no idea how many personal support workers uh, there were in the system. So there's there are many different um, points of knowledge that we know very little about, about our health workforce, which is one of the top 10 sectors where people work. And so um, it's problematic. Um, what do we have in place? Like, how is this tracked? Is it, is, are there attempts that are even made to this? I mean, how, what do we base our assumptions on now? What is in place? Okay, so we do have some data, and we should do a better job at utilizing those data to better plan, to understand, you know, how many how many uh, different types of health workers we need in different sectors, long-term care, home and community care, primary care, and, you know, in ERs. So, uh, so we do have some data. They may not be the best, but we should utilize the, those the best that we can. And we haven't been doing that. We haven't been uh, we haven't been planning, utilizing those data, and bringing together all of the different stakeholders, all of the different workers that are involved, the educators, those who regulate, um, the the workers like licensing them, uh, the unions, the employers. You know, you want to bring people together yeah. to kind of say, okay, how do we best, you know, approach planning. Yeah, and like you say, I mean, developing a plan, coming up with a plan to address the problems is really difficult when you can't quantify the shortcomings. You don't really have a starting point, right? Absolutely. So you need a baseline to yeah. kind of know where you where you need to go from. So we hear all this talk from different um, levels of government, primarily the provinces at this point with plans to um, fast track um, foreign workers who might have qualifications that we haven't recognized before to speed up that, to increase the number of nursing um, education spots and and things like that. So we're we're hearing all these plans. And the the question I have is if we don't really know um, what some of the shortcomings are and where some of the, the, the bottlenecks are, how can we go about with these plans to fix them if we don't know? I mean, are, are we perhaps heading off in the wrong direction, Doctor? Well, this is a what we call a wicked problem. It's complex. It has multiple layers. And so I think that we have, you know, clear indications from those on the front line that we have shortages yeah. and that we need to increase um, the numbers because the workloads are excessive. So, um, I mean, we don't need a mathematical model to tell us that. Um, so we can, we can, you know, chew gum and, uh, and rub our tummy at the same time. So we can increase 
of the number of seats so we need to recruit but at the same time we need to absolutely retain the workers that we have so we have to do that and so we need to bring back people who have just left including uh integrating internationally educated health professionals so that's you know an important uh, pipeline into professions but there are multiple pipelines that we need to figure out what are the incentives what are the barriers to them coming into into practice and we have to do something more than just increase seats in nursing schools because that's a long-term strategy and we can't bring people into a system that's bleeding them out right that's the equivalent of you know giving somebody a blood transfusion and not dealing with the gaping wound you know that's um so we we have to attend to this on a systemic basis so we need to act um in regards to this shortage But in the meantime, we need to be much more proactive. So the best time to have planned was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. Let's get started with the plan. Let's utilize the data that we have. Let's move towards improving those data and put those into decision support tools for a variety of different stakeholders that have to make a variety of different decisions along the pathway to increase the complement of workers that we have and to support them in the work that they do. Doctor, I... I I am so happy to hear you say that because we've been talking about this a lot and it and, and we've all come to the conclusion, uh, myself and the audience, that you know what, the government will just stand up and throw more money at it and say, okay, we solved the problem, we threw more money at it without actually addressing the things that will make a difference. I mean, uh, like you say, let's get started now. The information that you have, you're continuing to gather it. What, what's the hope? How, how would you like to see the work that you're doing implemented and has there been progress in that direction yet? Well, we are partnering with different organizations to create what we call sort of a minimum data standard. So this is like the data that we need in order to implement plans. And it needs to be standardized. So it means means that we need to have uh, the same type of data on nurses, on psychologists, on midwives, on doctors, on personal support workers, the whole gamut. We need to have standardized data because people work together in sectors. So this minimum data standard is what we're working on. What would be really helpful, because the data that are used for planning, the best data to be used for planning is that which is collected by um, registrars or regulatory Mm -hmm. authorities in the provinces and territories. If everybody decided, yay, that's a good idea, we're going to adopt this minimum data standard, and that would really accelerate our ability to plan. So utilize the data that we have, move towards um, adopting uh, a much more standardized data approach, and, you know, Bob's your uncle, we're going to be doing much better planning as they do in other countries. Dr. Bourgeau, I I wish you every success in the world with this work. It seems absolutely no-brainer to me and so essential. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity to to talk about this. Yeah, you bet. That is um, Dr. Ivy Bourgeau, a research chair in gender diversity and professions at the University of Ottawa and the lead of the Canadian Health Workforce Network, a research group that studies health and human resources. You know, we were talking about this last week, uh, the the whole healthcare situation. And, you know, and I think we came to an agreement, a lot of us, that, you know what, we've been talking about this for a whole long time, years decades we've been talking about this, right? Healthcare sucks, healthcare sucks, healthcare's in crisis, on and on it goes. And the government stands up and says, okay, well, we're going to spend more money. We're going to increase the budget. And you know what? Nothing gets better down. We're probably in a situation now where it's as bad as it's ever been. I don't know. I mean, we now have 30, more than 30 
communities in the province of Alberta that have had to see their health care services reduced because of staffing shortages. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A new report uh, just released um, by the University of Calgary School of Public Policy that says Canada needs to change its federal visa policy to speed up the admission of Ukrainian refugees, which has now slowed down to a trickle. Remember, this was such a focus for so long, and now um, have we moved past it, or are we not doing what we need to do to make sure that we're offering the help that we said we would for these people? Let's find out. We're going to chat now with um, Robert Faulkner who is a researcher in immigration and refugee policy at the University of Calgary and the author of this report. Robert, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Happy to be here, Shay. So it's it slowed down, but is that because demand has slowed down or do we still have uh, far more people wanting to come here than we're actually being able to process? Uh, the, it's the latter. The uh, The number of applications still um, coming in, uh, while maybe slowing a tiny bit, is still growing day by day. Um, while the number of uh, visas being processed uh, has started to slow in, in recent weeks and months. So we were doing a better job with this before? Correct, yes. Especially towards um, April and May, uh, when the, the Canadian Fast Track program was first launched, uh, Canadian immigration officials were, were processing far more applications than they are now. Okay, in this report that I'm seeing here, you know, we're up to 190,000 Ukrainians with pending applications to come here. That's an increase of 50,000 in just a month. So like you say, the demand exists. What's what, what's happened? Why, why has it slowed down so much? I'm not exactly sure. There's a couple different explanations. One is that uh, in our in our wider immigration system, including our economic immigration system, uh, we know that there are, there is plenty of, of applications that are very very backed up, and I suspect resources are being diverted between different categories to try to get those through the system. Uh, the other possibility is I think there there is perhaps less attention on this right now. Um, lest we forget, though, the, the war is still going on. It, there is not a, a firm conclusion yet, uh, and it will last for quite a while. So there, there are still quite a few Ukrainians who are looking for a place to find shelter. How intense is the visa process? I know it's different depending on where people are coming from. In some cases, Robert, as you know, you don't even need a visa to, to come. Um, how intense is this visa process, and could we possibly just do away with it? There's nothing we can do away with it. Um, I mean, the, the, the visa process for Ukrainians is simpler than perhaps other countries. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there's still confusing portions of it. You know, yeah. for example, uh, there are parts where it asks you to submit a passport, but then other parts where it says a passport isn't necessary um, and that Canada will provide you travel documents. But but it still is an impediment as we see that, that there aren't enough uh, visas being given out. Um, certainly, one option we could do, is, as you said, is, is just drop that requirement. Is that done anywhere else? Is anybody else doing that? 
There, there are, I mean, that's the entire European Union. Okay. Uh, the, the example we use uh, specifically is, is Ireland and the UK. Um, but, you know, it's actually an interesting comparison is that the UK has taken a much more Canada-like approach, still requiring visas for Ukrainians, albeit they're expediting them like us, whereas Ireland decided they were just going to drop the visa requirement right at the beginning of the war. And as a result, very, very quickly, Ireland has received more Ukrainian refugees on uh in, in absolute terms during the beginning of the war, and certainly still holds about five times the number of, of Ukrainian refugees on a per capita basis. Wow, five times. Um, I, I guess the, the, the concern is security, right? Are, are we allowing security risks in the country? That's always what we're on guard for with this visa program? Yes, and that, that's the one that, um, that the, the government decided when you look at uh, comments given by, by liberal MPs and, and parliamentary committees, their big concern is, is Russian terrorism entering through our through Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians entering the country. Now that said there there isn't a whole lot of evidence to support this. When you look Russian at the empirical terror. evidence yeah, exactly. Russian Russian agents infiltrating through the Ukrainian system to commit acts of terrorism here in Canada. The, the best evidence that we have says that this is, this is not really a credible theory. Um, that our law enforcement agents are pretty good at catching uh, these individuals, and that you know if you're gonna if you're a Russian agent entering Canada, there's far easier ways to do it, like through uh, you know our uh, Russian embassies within Canada and consulates, for example. And you don't have to go through the visa process to do a security check, right? You, there's other ways of handling that as well. There are too. I mean, if we were to do a visa on arrival approach where we we process them here on site, there's no reason why we couldn't sort Ukrainian arrivals into low risk and high risk groups. And you know, if there's a single mom with a couple of kids there, you know, maybe they're a Russian agent, but they're far less likely than say a single unaccompanied male entering Canada. Problem with this, though, Robert. I mean, the report sort of shines a light on what's going on, but it's an urgent situation, right? You got two hundred thousand people in a waiting list as it is right now. I mean, how can you fast track this? I mean, the simple one is, I think, is just to allow them to arrive here. Yeah. And that, that, that may seem trite, um, but I would say that we've done something similar before. Uh, the best example we can think of is anybody who's been in Canada, uh, you know, anybody who grew up during the 70s and 80s will probably remember at some point seeing or hearing of Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodian refugees arriving in Canada, yeah. where we made it very, very simple for them to get here. And we really, really involved the Canadian public, Canadian volunteers to really help them out beyond what the government was doing. So we have some experience. It can be done. It's just a matter of getting it done. Interesting report, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to join you, Shay. Appreciate it. Robert Faulkner, who is with um, the University of Calgary and the School of Public Policy and a researcher in immigration and refugee policy. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.